Special thanks to everyone who pledged money to crowdfund the show this week, including Matt Lacey, David Walker, Tim Edwards, Zilliko Elia, Andy Hagen, Jamie Holland, Roland Roberts, Ian Wilkinson, Alistair Harding, Dan Laney, Ian Mercer and John Balshaw. There's a full list of our supporters on 361podcast.com, along with information on how to help us for as little as $1 per episode via Patreon. Hello and welcome to 361, a weekly podcast about mobile tech and the world around it. My name's Ben Smith. I'm Rafe Blanford. And I'm Ewan McLeod. This week we are talking about, big drum roll, Rafe Blanford. That's it, the man himself finally gets his moment in the sun with his origin story. Welcome back, chaps. How you doing? Very well. Oh, come on, I've been waiting for this one. Special week this week. Very special. Special mm. week this week, Blanford. Mm-hmm. Twice in one season, Rafe Blanford, the centre of attention. That's right. Yes, I'm not 100% sure this is a good idea. No, I think it's really important because we have quite a lot of listeners that do want to know where you came from and the background. I mean, or dare I say it, the origin story. Is that what we're, what we're calling it? That? That's what we called it for yours. So that's we'll, right. That's yeah, what no. we called it for him. I felt quite uncomfortable doing that one about me. That's fine, because you just refuse to answer any questions you didn't fancy. Well, yeah, sorry about that. That's fine. I haven't actually listened to the full episode yet. Have you left that in? Yeah. Of me going, I can't answer that, I can't. Okay, great. Uh, So, Rafe, yeah. just want the audience to have a really accurate picture of what our personal relationship is like off (laughs) off mic. (laughs) You and would you? No. Okay. (laughs) I can't. I can't. So, yeah, I think our listeners would really like to hear about Rafe and where he came from. Mm. Uh, Well, not not in too much detail, but yes. Um, So, things of the week... First, you're McLeod. Uh, no, Rafe Blanford first, I think. Oh, as is right and proper. Indeed, his lordship. Well, I think we have to mention Pokemon Go, which I've no, actually we been... we don't, because we are over no. 35 exactly. and grown-ups. But yes. it's, it's well, not... You and, it, and I are over 35 thank and grown-ups. You. Thank you. I have had to go because I want to try and understand the phenomenon. But actually, what I really wanted to talk about was what amazed me was just how fast something could be adopted. And, you know, there's various numbers out there talking about it being more than Twitter or certainly more downloads than Tinder in its life cycle. And it does tell me something about the scale that mobile is able to achieve in, you know, just a couple of weeks, you can go from naught to hundreds of millions of users. And that just changes the dynamics when you can have a launch that's successful. I don't really care that it's Pokemon Go, although I think that's pretty interesting from a behavior change point of view, people going outside sort of augmented reality, yeah. which has been around for years, suddenly becoming a really big hot thing. And all the stories that generated in the press around it, people walking off cliffs into caves and did everything they, else. Did they manage so, the technology all right? I th- was there a little bit of a blip? Was uh, the technology, it, it, I think? It's more than a little bit. They've, uh, they've really struggled yeah, to keep the service it, yeah, up. Yeah. Yeah. But that's also a problem with this ability to scale yeah. very rapidly. It, so that bit is interesting. I mean, actually the mechanics of it, I think it worked because it was a familiar brand and there was sort of this whole thing around nostalgia but actually, having played it, yeah, it's interesting. Yes, it works well. Pretty limited in actually the mechanics and the gameplay. It's all around the brand. And that itself was interesting for me, understanding how powerful that part is of the proposition. But what really caught my attention is just the, the sheer scale of it so quickly and the fact it entered the public consciousness and sort of everyone knew what you were talking mm. about. And you know, more so than a lot of apps that we might talk about as being our favourites. This is something that kind of, entered the zeitgeist almost immediately and pretty incredible for just a couple of weeks after launch. 
Zeitgeist. Public consciousness. Oh, yeah, very good. Ray Blanford. Well done. A very high point rate. Very strong. On, very very strong. strong in the episode there. Mm. You, McLeod, your thing? Right, my thing is uh, Facebook and Facebook ads that I have been buying from. Right, so, you've given in, have you? Well, increasingly, I've been finding myself looking at Facebook and going, oh, that, that's quite interesting, that. And then I bought a shaving thing, you know, those kind of um, shaving called, club things. They're called razors, aren't they? Razor thing, yeah, that's right. I wasn't actually that impressed with it, but I just tried, I just followed the next, next finish, right. basically, from the, the ad, very, very good. And then I've just recently bought an Eve mattress. Do right. you know what I'm talking about? I do. I've heard, I've seen the adverts now. On Facebook, right? They're, actually, or no, on, on the tube. On the tube. Yeah. On the tube. Okay, because I've been seeing them on Facebook for quite a while. And I thought, do you know what? I, um, I, I think I need a mattress. And then this Eve one been popping up all the time yeah, on I'm trying my to think. There is a US brand that advertises on loads of podcasts. Uh, yeah, and I can't fly for me think of the name. Lisa, and, isn't it Lisa? Lisa. Lisa. No, I think it's no, a box. But they, it's, yeah. it's, it's another mat- All these pop mattress up. startup. Yeah. They, they send the mattresses in a box and it kind of pops up on your bed. So has it arrived in your house? Yeah, it arrives tomorrow. Um, right. So I'll, I'll, get, I'll let you know how it is. But what I want to talk about is the face, the fact that I'm buying, this is the third thing in three weeks I have bought from Facebook. Now, do you think that's because they're targeting you very well? It's it's effective, relevant advertising? Yes, uh, yes. Although my question now is I'd like to say I've bought it. Thank you very much. Oh, I hate that. I bought a toaster and a kettle from Amazon. Yeah. And for the next six months... And he went, toasters, toasters, toasters. Like, Retar- I, what, do you mean, but the, it follows you across the web, right? With his retargeting. Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? I do, well, but I don't need any more toasters. Yes. Like, thank you. you know, the average yeah. life expectancy. Ah, right. you're talking about, are you talking about Amazon or the retargeting on other websites? But I, I mean, all the adverts. I only searched Amazon, so yeah. I presumably these are. Right. Okay. Because what I often do is I'll buy it from said manufacturer, from their website, done. And then they haven't tied the thing together to say he's bought it. Don't yeah, bother don't him. Advertise so him. I'll be on yeah. another website and it's, it's wall to wall ads saying, buy this product. You come back to our website and buy it. I have bought it. So that is a lingering issue with Facebook, but I, I have to say they're doing really well targeting me. That's a really interesting point because programmatic media, which is where that stuff comes from, hasn't really linked in yet to the kind of fulfillment cycle. And that data-driven advertising, which is what it's all about, does work tremendously well, which is why you see so much of it. And I think the most common one that people complain about is uh, flights, things like um, EasyJet ads. Um, But it amazes me that that circle hasn't been closed yet because it can't be that difficult to do. The reason it hasn't happened is because most of that data is sitting within the advertising stack and you have parts of that that are specifically, uh, specifically for that. And that the advertising all exists there in that data. And then there's the first party data, which is I bought the mattress. And they're not very good about injecting that into the right part of the oh, terrible. It just doesn't and, happen. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to get into all the terminology well, about it, but it's you, a bit. You a, have. Well, <laughs> first party. Yeah. Third party. Second. Who's the second party then? Second party would be. Uh, well, which one are we invited to? <laughs> See. All right. Thank okay. You, right. Uh, what about you then, well, Mr. I, Smith? Well, I, I was just—I mean, just following that point, I was just frustrated with Amazon as well because if you accept that it's quite hard for advertisers to know that I've bought the product, yeah. I, okay, I can see that. But Amazon knows that I bought a toaster from them, and I don't need an email saying, "Here's twenty more toasters you might like," because you love toast, don't you? You know, like my house is just stacked full of toasters because you know it just is not even just within that platform. Depends um, how many kitchens you have, really. W- w- well, exactly. It's I mean, three, isn't it? Well, yeah. I think Blanford's got one in every one of his, you know, sort wings. Of, exactly. The other one, <laughs> the other one that annoyed me, and actually, this this was the this was one of the things I was thinking about is um, is, this, is this the thing of the week or not? Well, my thing of the week is I really want to buy a good gadget bag, and I we talked I haven't talked about this for a while but i've got 
got a really nice two me briefcase. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I'm, I'm trying to get fit, doing a bit more walking. I want a decent rucksack now to wear when I'm walking about the place. What does the discerning gadget geek who doesn't want to look like he's just fallen out of a mountain hiking, you know, mm. shop or something like that? What, what I want recommendations because I don't think there are any good products out there. It's got to be something that like it has looks after my kit well, has all the spaces, all the slots, keeps it protected. But I'm doesn't. still using this one I got from Uplink, yeah. the Qualcomm event. There's just so many things that they're very functional, but they're ugly. Or they're very beautiful, but they're not very functional. Toomey is what I was thinking. Well, I, so then, I, I have a Toomey briefcase and they're good, but I don't think I can have two 300-pound bags. I mean, having one was like a massive treat. What kind of Apple Watch have you got? Oh, Here we go again. All right. And, and he's not even wearing it. No, he's not even wearing I, it. I've stopped wearing it at the moment. I'm going back to my regular yeah, so that was a good. Um, that was a good buy then. That's 700 quid to make it look... Yeah. Oh, let's go to the Ewan McLeod house and look at the mountain of abandoned technology. <laughs> um, anyway, my other, my other thing of the week is the train line in the UK, the trainline.co.uk, they oh, are yeah. an app and a website that retail train tickets and also allow you to do journey planning and those sorts of things. Fine. So, so far, so unremarkable. They have started to do crowdsourced surveys of people who they think are on trains and to ask how busy those trains are so that it will tell people when they buy their, <laughs> when they, when they buy their tickets, predict how busy a train is going to be, whether there'll be seats available, where in the train they should no, sit, smart. what time they should travel. I'm really interested in this because I think it's a great idea, but I just at the moment can't imagine they're going to get enough crowdsourced data to make it worthwhile. It could, it could work. It could catch on, but you'd need to really well, want but, to. But then, then the group of people I was talking to about it, I went, oh, no, no, I use it, I use it, I use it. So it definitely has some mileage. Yeah. I mean, you, you say that because Waze always amazed me that they were able to get to a volume that made sense because mm. that was an interaction sitting in the car I couldn't really imagine I mean, myself you got value, doing. You got value, yeah. you got a free... Waze helps yeah. me right away, and it, and, I, and then once I have it in front of me, I'm inclined to press the button and go, oh, traffic jam. Yeah, you got uh, I mean, maybe I'm just that, not but... community-minded. But, well, I mean, you don't commute, And, do and you? it's probably worth saying that actually you don't need very many data, very much data in order to be able to make that kind of interpolation mm. because you can it's make some assumptions very quickly. Yeah. Awesome. Well, now I think it's time, Ben, for us to get to the main event. The main the, event. The, the Blamford origin story. I, well, I, for one, have been looking forward to this for all of the 10 years I've now known Rafe Blanford. Exactly. I've been embarrassed to ask. <laughs> well, everything that you want to ask him, you can do so now on behalf of the listener. <sighs> yeah. Oh, no. Uh, so, dear listener, what we are doing today is giving you some context to Rafe Blanford. Now and again, we have asked him questions about his background, but really in pointed, limited style. Today, we are going all in all in on Blamford and we are going to discover what makes the guy tick and what made him the person he is today. Let's do some rapid fire background questions. Right, love it. Go. Okay, right. Uh, Where were you born? Eastbourne. School? Black Boys Primary School, then Skippers Hill, then I don't care. I don't care. Uh, What I mean is expensive spendy one or scummy (laughs) state one like I went to. I was privileged to go to an expensive school. Favourite topic at school? Favourite topic? Ooh, that's a difficult one. I, I liked everything apart from languages. Extracurricular activity? Where do I start? I mean... Were, um, were you on the football team? No. No, I wasn't on the football team. And I... Were you a stopped, rugby player? I stopped playing rugby after I was eight and ended up on the bottom of the scrum with stud marks. What, have, back. what did but you... I did do cricket and hockey and I was the scorer for the cricket team. Okay, there we go. What did you win at school? A number of things. It's gone, yeah. General knowledge, trophy, debating trophy, about five or six subject awards. All right, boring. One thing that people won't generally know about you? 
I was deaf until I was about three or four. Had, had oh, very good. Had grommets in. Don't do that. First He's better time, now. The first time I had the operation, telephone went, it rang, I jumped out of my skin apparently. I was able to lip read. I can't really do that anymore. Although yeah, I still, you, still, you probably st- should learn to in this yeah. podcast when I'm talking to himself. Yeah, yeah. probably. I still have uh, bad hearing and I still do uh, need to see people's faces to be able to understand them properly, but I can't do it if I cover my ears. Well, that's why our emails are so strange, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now let's fast forward a bit because when we talked to you in McLeod, it was all about entrepreneurialism and upsetting yep. people and taking their money. I think I'm summarizing, but you know, broadly that. <sighs> and with you, I think your love is tech, or yep. at least, you know, sort of that sort of well, thing. Is that accurate? Well, actually, I would say it's a much wider thing that I'm just curious about the world around me. And I like to know how it works and so it's because this he is owns where, so much of it <laughs> how does this work is this but, mine <laughs> this is where the love of sort of you know seeing neolithic stuff or ancient history or the countryside or rural things wanting to understand the geology and how the whole landscape fits together so at a systems level as geographers would have it okay so let's go back to first bit of technology that was yeah, we'll get yours. to cement in a minute let's, yeah, we'll okay. get to okay. let's work let's save that for the special bit yeah okay so you know there were a few very fondly remember childhood toys, but I think probably the best one is when I was 16, four weeks before my GCSEs, I got That's about assigned, three weeks ago, wasn't it? <laughs> I got a Sign 5 handheld. I should probably ah. tell the backstory to this. The reason I got the Sign was that, very unlike me, I was swinging across a river, sort of imitating Tarzan. You know, I, I, that, that, it, that's who he looks like. You know, we were talking about this. Oh, so no, who's no. Ray Flanford look and like? Is it a film star? Unfortunately, Tarzan. unlike Tarzan, I let go and I ended up in a rocky stream, broke both my wrists with my GCSE exams four weeks away. So I got a signed five so I could do my notes and my revision. And then the day before my first exam, oh, in fact, the day of my first exam, the cast came off and I managed to break both at the same time. I had one cast up to my shoulder and one up to my uh, elbow. That's OMG. And my parents phoned up the school to let them know. And uh, they didn't believe them because they thought it was so unlike me. They thought of all the people in the <laughs> entire school Blanford to do this. What? They said, no, can't possibly be Have him. you always been called Rafe Blanford? Uh, Is that your real yes. name? Yes. Okay. Now we've got a picture of the Scion 5 here. Yep. So that was the, like, it's a mini laptop, isn't it? It was the fold so down mi- mini laptop. And actually this was the, effectively the predecessor to Symbian because Scion was the company. See, that, there's a connection. Bing. There we go. So 16 is when you got your first basic Symbian Sign, device, effectively. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it was before, before Symbian, but actually the first version of Symbian was called Epoch Release uh, 6, effectively, okay. and the yeah. Scion 5 ran Epoch Release 5. See, thank you. Thanks. Excellent. I wish I'd asked a more detailed question. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... Was it love at first sight? Like, did you, when you got your hands on that sign, did you think this is amazing? I like, I want to know everything about this. I'd already been using computers. I mean, this was internet through CompuServe in those days, but also had the Amstrad, had uh, one of the Mac LCs, kind of a secondhand one, which I absolutely loved and did the whole taking cover discs off computer magazines Mm. and loading on games and all of that. But that was a very formative experience for me. I immediately understood and kind of, instinctually that this was going to be one but actually the the sign thing was the start of a kind of a love of mobile gadgetry in general and it kind of went from there really so well, yeah after the sign five after the sign five i mean that had me interested in symbian so then kind of as that was happening it was quartz pearl and crystal which were the reference design for the first symbian device and i started doing a website about those wait, and a, was minute, called, wait a minute okay hold on hold on so you're 16, you then you went to the sixth form? This was then at school, and then kind of two years later, the Symbian thing was happening. That's when I kind of started. Back then it was called 
Epoch Help, and then Why very rapidly rolled into all about ER6. Epoch Help. Epoch Help, which was kind of me experimenting with websites because seeing this is another technology that was going to be important. So learning HTML, JavaScript, CSS, all of that. So you just thought, I'm just going to set up a website called Epoch Help. Yes. And Why? I, I, I honestly can't remember what the mode of it. It was mainly because there what was... What did a, it have on it? It was a frequently asked questions to help people get Why? more out Why of devices. Because I thought it was an interesting topic and there wasn't a lot of material out there about that. He can't understand any answer that doesn't begin with, I wanted to make money. So, I mean, the the explanation was really, I wanted to learn how to do websites and it was a topic that interested me. Most people would have done Rafe Blanford's page, you know, a couple of take that photos and... Under construction with the (laughs) animated thing going around. You know, I had the GeoCities page for all of a couple of weeks and I said, I want to do something more than that. You've registered a domain. No, that came later. This was off uh, F2S, which provided free hosting for quite a while, and they gave you uh, access to Five a CGI megabytes. bin so you could you know, run oh, Perl scripts and, CGI bins. and all of that, that stuff. Wow. And I mean, thinking back on it, it's, it's kind of amazing that I found the time to do this. But that rapidly evolved. What was happening, Symbian was being spun out of Sign at that time, and then that turned fairly rapidly into all about ER6, which later became all about Symbian. So, so did you register a domain for that? Uh, yes, I did register a domain for that. Okay. So the first domain I registered outside of kind of personal usage, which was blanford.co.uk, was all about er6.com. Okay, so let's not just leave school behind quite yeah. yet then. So finished school, went through to 18, obviously. Yep. And then what A-levels did you get? I did, uh, uh, well, I did well in my A-levels. I got geography, history, physics and chemistry. When you say oh. got? Well, you did well. I did well. You did well. Okay. okay. We, we went was to that four A's, do you reckon? I don't know. Well, I, I, you... I then went to university, so yes. Yeah. Was... And you went to one of the most prestigious uh, universities <laughs> in Oxford. the UK, Oxford. Oxford. It's lovely. No, yeah, it's no, very I, nice there. Very funny. I went to Cambridge, and, light and, blue. But, and for those not in the UK, they think like, aren't, they're the same though, aren't they, Rafe? No, they're two different cities. I mean, they're referred to collectively as Oxbridge, but there's quite a bit of rivalry between the two. But Cambridge is the best university in the world, and Oxford's about number three or four. You will have heard me now and again mentioning Oxford. Blanford has now got over it because in the early time he used to actually, when I say Oxford, he would go Cambridge. And actually, Rafe didn't go to Cambridge. He went to Cambridge, actually, which is, you know, a very specific university when you get it wrong. That's the Polytechnic. Exactly. So, Rafe, you find yourself in Cambridge. Doing what? Reading what? Well, you're surrounded by some of the best and the brightest people in the country, if not the, yeah, it was intimidating because everyone was very, very intelligent. But were you doing like a technology subject? Is this... No, I did uh, three years of geography. I did do... I didn't know that. No, didn't I didn't know that. I did uh, physical geography. It's a shame. Part, you could have done also... something proper. <laughs> this is why you like... But then I also spent a year <laughs> in the Judge Institute, which is the business school in Cambridge. So my actual degree is in geography and management studies. That's the way he learned his long words. Wouldn't have known see. that. Now, while you... So you did a four-year course. Yeah. While you were at university blogging and mobile stuff is, is that, taking yeah, off. Yeah, when so, did that start? When so did we're, you... we're now talking about basically 2001 to 2004. I had a job by then. My, I feel old. Okay, go and, on. Uh, yeah, I did Yeah, too. I mean, blogging hadn't really taken off, hadn't been thought of, but at this time I went to one of my first Nokia conferences while I was at university. And by this time the site had evolved a bit and it, it had basically turned into there were sections for news, reviews, and, but it was essentially a blog. How much time were you putting into writing this every week? I can't actually remember. How frequently were you updating it then? It was getting updated most days, but even from quite early on, there were people helping out. So Steve Litchfield and Ewan Spence were around from uh, pretty early on. 
what from all about epoch uh, so i think it, i think it was when it became all about symbian but in those days that an update might consist of just a couple of paragraphs so it was maybe half an hour and actually a lot of the time was spent getting that content management system right so those 20 page epics they came later they came much later i i love the long form rafe bramford content you know what uh, was it all about what all about symbian.com no before oh, that er6 which i I'm, i don't know what's happened to okay. that domain so you, you're, you're at university you're yeah. writing this blog for for love because you're a geographer so but this is not by uh, this time though the, it's the early days of google adsense so actually it was, you, it was, it was making was, money i was making money off it more than i would have done if i sort of got a job on the side and to be honest what people may not know about Cambridge is actually their eight-week terms. So there's actually... You don't do any work. These smart people. You have to work very, very hard for eight weeks. But outside of that, you have a lot of freedom. And so I spent a lot of my time in holidays. And I was continuing to learn how to do web stuff. So this is when I taught myself PHP. I wrote a complete CMS for the site and did a whole bunch of other things experimenting. There were a couple of side projects like Symbian Themes, which had millions of visitors and millions of people downloading themes, but it didn't really hold my interest. I was always interested in kind of the long-form content. And so by that time, I was getting hold of review devices. Let's talk about the first review device, because you just glaze over this, like, oh, I went to a conference, I got a review device, all this kind of stuff. But like for many people who are interested in tech, they'll be thinking... How? Because I'd love to get I, a review device. Know, so, so you I know, wish I could remember because the the very first smartphone I bought, and you didn't drink, did you? At university? I didn't. No, so, which, how do you not remember these things? Because so, that is so my excuse. So, the very first <laughs> first device smartphone I got was actually the Sony Ericsson P800, which I bought in the Orange Store yeah, near same. the Market Square in Cambridge, and I absolutely loved that device. And so, I did a you know full review of that, and then I think it was going to as it was then called the Nokia Multimedia Conference, and picked up sort of a 6260. But also, I have to give credit to Phil Schwartzman, who ran Lifeblog, which was one of the kind of Nokia products that was the early days of kind of doing... It's like microblogging. It was kind of of microblogging and pulling in your photos and everything else. And he actually sent me, I think it was a 7610, which was... This was around the era of the Nokia 6600, or Charlie, as it was kind of affectionately known. Only, or, only by you, Rafe. Well. <laughs> At least the affection and, part. And so, I mean, it was really early, and actually PR departments weren't really set up for online media, and certainly not for sort of for bloggers. And, and so, so I made stage, contact very early with... How many people were reading all about Symbian? It was all about Symbian at that it point. It was all about Symbian at that point. How many point? people were reading it? I mean, what did you say to them to get regular old school PR people to take you seriously? It took a long time to get to that point. And actually, it was some, I think, forward-looking people in Nokia recognised that this was a way to get their information out. And actually, it was their own engineers and people in Nokia were using the forums to get answers to questions. Because the early days were all about Symbian. Actually, the biggest strength was in the forum itself. And this is when forums were still very much one of the big ways communities formed online. And, you know, at peak times, there were a thousand plus people on this forum and there were, over the years there were millions of posts that's gone away a lot more now i mean partly i think a lot of those early communities were based around these kind of big forums and news got added on and all about simming wasn't really an exception to that but i always enjoyed and focused more on the the content from a personal point of view although i got a lot out of participating in the forum but that was recognized by a couple of people with a knock and actually one of them was sort of a friend of the show mark squires who i I think I sent either a fax to or wrote to <laughs> to kind of get his attention and said, you know, will you help support this? Mark and, strikes me as the kind of guy who'd love a fax. <laughs> and uh, as a result of that, sort of made contact with him and they were very kind. 
and very supportive throughout the sort of subsequent, you know, 10 plus years. Okay. So you're at university, you've created this really busy website with a forum and writers who contribute regularly. Is this Russ Spooner? Uh, yes, I'm just trying to remember whether Russ Spooner was a real person or one of the made-up people, because oh, there were a couple made of made-up people. people. But actually, at this time, I mean... Fake bylines. Oh, you, you made people up. Uh, it wasn't so much me that made people up. One of my favourite things at this time was actually, I got an invitation from Microsoft to fly to Seattle. Ooh. Again, how? How? So Where that, does this land out of? So they were looking for what they regarded as the most influential kind of mobile sites. And it was things like Pockets PC Thoughts, which was run by Jason Dunn. Then there was Paul O'Brien, who ran Modico. Just let's, let's set some context. In the early days of those yeah. mobile websites, and those of us that were around at the time that remember them, how big would you say All About Symbian was in your university era compared to those other sites? It was probably as big as they came. I mean, in the Symbian world, there were two big sites, and All About Symbian was probably the bigger and one. Which one was the other one? Uh, mysymbian.com run by Michael Jers, yeah. a great guy. And, you know, that, <laughs> who I crushed. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, didn't, we coexisted for a long time. But there were a whole bunch of these. And Microsoft said, effectively, I want to invite the 25 most influential site owners to a get together. And they wanted to show off Windows Mobile, as it then was. And this was an event called Mobus. I went to a whole bunch of them over the years. But credit to them for actually recognising early on this was a, a group of people who could be very influential. Of course, back then, there just weren't that many sites. I mean, now there are quite literally hundreds of them and there are lots of blogs. But actually, at this point in time, a lot of people would rather denigrate them by calling them fan sites. But actually, the level of knowledge and information within those was really quite incredible. Right. When did you realise All About Symbian was a success? Ooh. All right. Uh, yeah. Follow-up question then. When you approach the end of your degree, yeah. like you are a young person with a good degree from one of the, well, U- wait, from the one of one of the UK's best universities, maybe, you know, maybe up there with Oxford even. What is it that makes you think I'm not going to go and get a job in a big tech firm or counting concrete or, <laughs> you know, looking at sedimentary or flow or yeah, colouring in maps or whatever it is geographers do and think, actually, I'm going to go and be a blogger. So I didn't regard it as being a blogger because that term hadn't really been popularised very much. It was being in online media. And I recognised that being online was a really exciting place to be. And actually all about Symbian kind of facilitated that. And I, of course, I was also very passionate about the topic, but it was also earning good money. So if I'd gone and got a job, it wouldn't have been that much difference from a financial point of view. Did you do the milk round? I did do bits of the milk round. Okay, but so didn't, for people who are not familiar, for people milk round. That's kind of the idea that Oxford students will go and approach a bunch of the big corporates in the UK and go on to graduate trainee well, schemes. Let, let, no, let me give you the outsider's perspective then. The big employers with the most desirable jobs flock to Oxford and Cambridge yes. and try to get the attention of graduates there in, in events with, you know, free drink and fancy shows and promises of preferential free career treatment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I can't help noticing that they didn't come to my university quite as much, but, you know, I'm not jealous. We'll, we'll get to the Ben Smith origin there, story. Then, there we? is no Ben Smith origin story. Just, you know, so did you do any milk round interviews? I didn't do any interviews because I sort of decided that this is what I was going to do. And actually I said to myself, I will give this a go. And because to that point I was still obviously doing it effectively part time. What was the plan then? Because I mean, I don't want to be dismissive, but perhaps the growth that has come has been perhaps something you couldn't anticipate when you've enjoyed, you enjoyed it. And it it was a, a hobby turned into a business, turned into a passion. 
but you now end up at the end of university, you've got this really popular site, you've got people like Microsoft asking for your attention, which you know feels today unpre- absolutely unprecedented. And then you say, right, I'm going to make a go of this. But what was your view of what this would turn into? You know, what was the plan? The plan was basically as simple as it sounds to do more content and to grow the traffic and to learn more about what was involved in doing that. And so I, was, I guess I was pretty young and idealistic in terms of thinking I can make this into something that is a, a serious going concern. And even then, actually, it had really got to that point. It was how much could I, I then grow it? I mean, we're talking here about the time when it was pretty obvious that smartphones were going to go big to my mind, but probably in the general population that hadn't been accepted. And Symbian at this point was you know, shipping tens of millions, not hundreds of millions of devices a year. And I could see that there was going to be compound growth. And I could see that things like Google AdSense and this ability to monetize by putting advertising against content was going to be a big thing. You know, if I'd probably been more far-sighted, I may have taken a different route. But there was also a genuine desire to kind of want to educate, inform and entertain. So it was a rather you know, Rethian philosophy. So let's fast forward a bit now. So you've left uni, you've built this business, paying enough to want to do it full time. You've jetted around the world and you've got good links in a relationship because you've you met loads of relatively high profile bloggers. I mean, Rafe Blanford's contacts book has always been one of the th- things that impressed me. He just knows everyone that needs and to know him. They know him. Exactly. I mean, the, the thing to bear in mind is a lot of people who are now become bigger names in the media. You know, this was basically when Engadget got founded around this time. And I knew a lot of the people who switched over from Gizmodo and they've subsequently gone to The Verge. People like uh, Dieter Bonn, who's now executive editor at The Verge, he was running, uh, I think it was Mobile Nations and sort of a trio blog at that point in time. And a lot of those people are are still around in in that situation or have gone to work for the manufacturers as kind of evangelists. So from from this point, what's the next point in the Rafe Blanford story there? Where does this go? You're publishing the site every day, news updates. What happens next? I'd like to know when you knew it was big. I think probably when it went through a million visitors a month. And that to me was really big. And then it sort of headed up and up towards sort of, I guess it was 10 million page views. It started to need a really big server to be able to run it. And actually I had to spend more of my time worrying about that and less about kind of the content. And at that point, you know, as I say, my, I had people writing for it. It was Ewan Spence, uh, Steve Litchfield. Later on, there was David Gilson and some other sort of freelancers as well who were kind of, but those were the, I think three biggest contributors over various years. And also actually uh, Chrissy Lassen and um, sort of in Finland, who became our kind of gaming expert and uh, view on the Finnish side of things, which of course they were more advanced than anyone else. And so, you know, it's difficult because when you're involved in it, in a business, you kind of don't necessarily see and remember the milestones. So the things that I remember now are going to particular events or particular phone launches And at that point, I did try and expand the site a couple of times. So I looked at how to do branding and made mistakes, you know, did sort of all about Series 16, all about UIQ, and eventually they got folded back in again. Later on, you got all about Mego and all about, well, all about Memo and then Mego, and I did an Engage-specific site. But none of them caught fire in quite the same way that Symbian did. But it was the biggest site about Symbian on that point in time. Of course, that was the biggest smartphone operating system on the planet. And so... It was, I think, pretty influential. Let's talk about Nokia. Okay. Because by the time I got to know you, 
The story that springs into my mind, and I, I think you and you were, so we'd all, this is a few years later, I'm jumping ahead, but we'd all gone to Mobile World Congress yes. under various covers and we were all doing our things. And we went to, I think it was the N82 launch and it was great. And you know, we all took pictures and it was all very exciting because it had a good camera in it and this kind of stuff. And then as they were often want to do, Mark Squires, friend of the show, and one of the chaps there who, who sort of did the blogger outreach said, come on, we're going to bring you all for dinner with a bunch of execs. And, and we're going to bring you to a really nice restaurant in Barcelona. Fantastic. Sat there, chatting away. Actually, attendance was surprisingly poor. So we had actually a disproportionate number of execs for us, and we're chatting away. And I realised that every time we would ask a factual question about this handset or what markets it gone into, or do you remember that one that had the funny keyboard? They wouldn't answer it. They just turned to Rafe and go, Rafe, Rafe, when did we when did we release the 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 seventies, the one with the swirly? Kit? What was that called? What was the code name? <laughs> who was the guy who was the lead dev on that? The, you remember the secret code name? What was the prototype called? And yeah, so hang a on slight a exaggeration, and, and like, but not really. What amused me was we were sat next to the security guy who'd spent the earlier part of the evening telling us about how tight. Nokia security was. And then there was all these Nokia people basically asking you about your insight into their company. <laughs> you knew way more than them. You knew everything about models. And the point was, I mean, obviously you knew it because you were you were an expert, but they knew you knew and deferred to you. And it just, it stuck in my mind as the so, definitive Rafe Blanford moment. I think you're very kind in recording that in such a positive light. Uh, but that was the reality of my life in that I was writing and had to be familiar with all the hardware. And at that point, actually, I probably could have told you about most of the applications that were available for the phone because they were, you know, in the hundreds rather than in the thousands or the hundreds of thousands or millions that there are now for any given phone. And actually also each of the bits of hardware were fairly distinctive. You know, they had a slightly different keyboard or the Engage was the gaming version or they were the E-series, which were the... But, But how did you know so much? Because the other thing that stood out in my memory was that you were very good at knowing what was coming or having really good insight into sort of stuff that shouldn't be public. And you were very good at being discreet about yeah, it. Filtering I, it. I always thought, he's a mug. He should be writing about this stuff because you know, he knows things that no one else knows. And, you know, as an as a amateur blogger, I was like, oh, that's amazing. You need to know that. But you were always very, nope. You know, I've got relationships, I've got trust with these people, and that seemed to stand you in good stead because... It, it, you know, it did. It was a complete contrast to the culture of most of that early internet blog, which was, you know, get as many leaks as possible. And I said very early on, I don't really want to write about something unless it's been publicly Ooh. announced. In retrospect, maybe it was a mistake, but actually as a, as a consequence of that, yes... I did think I got much better access than I would have otherwise done did, and was trusted to a high degree. Did product leads ring you up and say, hey, Rafe, you know, like in six months' time, we're going to be releasing it, this phone. What do you think? It wasn't anything that formal, but an awful lot of stuff did arrive in my inbox where people just go, yeah, I'd like an opinion on this, or this is going to be coming out soon. And without giving too many secrets away, you know, it got to the point where the PR people would say, there's something coming next week. Can't really tell you the details, but, you know, you kind of already know about it. And as a result, was able to pre-write a lot of the news stories and therefore appear much more knowledgeable. And yeah, a lot if you got to know it, you could guess exactly what was coming. You could read the tea leaves. So the one concern I had, knowing you, was you were so extricably, so not inic, but extricably yeah. linked to Nokia. How did you handle the difficult years, right? Because there was a point whereby I remember arguing with you, either on camera no. or whatever, now and again. I don't it remember, does happen. I don't remember it does that. Happen. Um, Had I popped the loop? <laughs> no, again, I would argue with Blanford saying, look, I think you're missing this iPhone thing. This is really cool. 
this is what people are going to, the, the, the way the app store works is just fantastic. You would be arguing the Nokia calls accurately, I think, for some time. And there was a point when I think we all began to notice that Nokia was genuinely failing. When and how was that for you? Again, it's difficult to pinpoint because I think it's with we're saying that came out of university and there were five years where I think the dominance up to sort of 2010, it was pretty much unquestioned by anyone. This was all kind of, and then pre-iPhone, there wasn't really much in it. I mean, there was Windows Mobile and there was Palm, but Symbian ruled supreme in Europe. And then this was when it was having 80% plus market share. And then the iPhone came in. And I mean, I probably learned a very valuable lesson about how markets can be disrupted. And it's much easier to look back with hindsight and be wise on that. But of course, at that point, you know, Simeon was still out selling the iPhone massively. And there was, there was an opportunity for Nokia to respond. And they didn't. Right. And, and that, actually, yeah, it, it surprised, when did you, yeah. surprised me that they didn't. I mean, one of the most salutary lessons was actually when Ben did a video about the Ovi store. And it was full of Hannah Montana content. And he wrote, he scripted a brilliant video. To be fair, yeah. I mean, a friend of the show, Dan Lane and, and James Watley from the Voicemail podcast, also, you know, were, were involved in producing that. Yeah. But yes, what we mocked was the store had been launched with this big fanfare about it was going to know context and location and place. And it was going to be really smart at suggesting stuff. And then when you went in, because it was so stuffed full of one brand's content, it would just keep suggesting inappropriate stuff to you. And yeah, and I picked Hannah Montana and then subsequently received very many Hannah Montana gifts from Nokia employees who thought uh, this was I, hilarious. Which also demonstrated they've always had a good sense of humour and actually mm, yeah. they were very good at building relationship and they had their engagement programme run through a thousand heads and all of that. But actually it brings the point you were making there that it was all about the context in terms of what it was going to do. Nokia always had the vision and they were way ahead of their time for a long time. But where they really lacked was the execution. And that only started becoming more obvious, I would say, a couple of years after the iPhone launch, when they talked about all the things that they were going to do. And then there was this very obvious comparison to be made against Apple, who were actually executing on pretty much the same vision that Nokia was espousing. And actually, if you look at that early history, you know, for example, the iPhone being the first to have a web browser. Actually, Nokia had the WebKit browser long before the iPhone. They even had an app store in the form of, sort of something called Download, but it didn't quite measure up. And it was only when you saw the iPhone came in. And so I think probably the realisation for me that there was very serious competition was 2012. But even then, I think I was very much inside the bubble. And so it was hard to have enough perspective to look outside. So obviously, I should listen to you and more at that time. Well, I, I, do, I do remember arguing with you. And I think, honestly, I don't think it was taking a contrary position just for giggles <laughs> about the it's not good enough argument. The fact that the Nokia experience was so difficult and you know, I didn't expect to be prompted if I wanted to connect to the internet. And I remember you, you and bearer. I- Choose your bearer. Exactly. You and I having a very specific conversation about Nokia Maps, which could be and was later brilliant, but was just a sea of confusing you know, interface oh, and yeah. things. And actually, I think at the time I was championing saying, well, it need, you know, Google Maps has it right. But you talked about 2012 there. When was the point when inside you realised- this isn't just a wobble. This has, you know, something fundamentally shifted here. No, it was, it was definitely before that time. I mean, I can remember being at a Nokia World and interviewing Ollie OPK, who was the CEO of Nokia, and sort of thinking... Because that's the circles you used to move in. I mean, I think back on it, it's pretty amazing the level of access I got in it with a lot of the executives. And actually, particularly early on, they were very open. I think there was probably less media training or they didn't expect people to ask the kind of questions they're asking. And later on, it definitely 
tightened up and that did coincide with when they were starting to have more trouble. It's difficult because, as I said, inside the bubble, and I mean, looking back in hindsight, you sort of go, why didn't I do something about it earlier? And actually, at one point, did consider launching the equivalent of all about Android and all about iOS, but decided not to, basically, because didn't have the capacity to do so. And looked at the kind of options to get away with, you know, including sort of taking on funding and what other steps could have been done. And, you know, in retrospect, you sort of go, oh, what would have happened? But also, even back then, as I sort of alluded to with this kind of inform, educate and entertain philosophy, plus not wanting to do leaks, actually very much marched to the beat of my own drum. And it wasn't just about making money from it. It was something that I was passionate about and enjoyed. And I think that reflected kind of the fact that I was still pretty young and didn't have as much experience as the business world. And so, you know, other people looking would have gone, that was absolutely crazy. But you also have to remember, this was actually pre sort of the web absolutely going phenomenal in terms of monetization and blogging. And I was probably a bit sheltered because of that. And so didn't realize quite where things were going. I would say probably 2012. And then, of course, you had subsequently the switch to Windows Phone and it was pretty obvious. But I think the thing is, realized that there was more competition but at the same time the smartphone industry had exploded so it wasn't like they were selling less phones they were actually still selling loads and loads of phones it was just other people were selling loads and loads of phones and it wasn't really until the windows phone switch when there was a dip in sales that i thought "Mm, this is a bit of a bigger problem did you know they were going to do windows so i knew they were going to do windows i actually got someone leaked to me the information and i didn't really 100 percent believe it but i knew there was going to be a big press conference And I didn't think it was going to be such a dramatic switch. I thought they were going to announce they were going to start doing Windows Phone, but would continue doing Symbian devices as well. And in the end, that's kind of what they did. But actually, on the day, they were quite explicit about the way it was announced. We are stopping Symbian. We will be switching to Windows Phone. Please keep buying them, though, because we really need the money. Oh, dear. Exactly. But at that point, I think the problems they were having were obvious. But at the same time, I think, you know, people forget just how quickly the decline happened. And really, it has been in the space for the last two years that Nokia went from an industry giant. You know, the signs, I think, were there beforehand in retrospect, but being inside the bubble, as I said, wasn't clear. But that press conference was uh, <laughs> probably one of the funnier experiences because Stephen Elop and Steve Barmer got on stage and made the announcement. Then I got asked the first question. It's like the president. You know, it's like, you know... Um, the, you, the boy at the front. Yeah, well, no, uh, he, he was in seat 1A, I think. <laughs> you were near him, weren't you? So, I was near him, yeah. but the FT guy got yeah. nixed Tim, I think it was, from FT, yeah. if I remember, 1B. <laughs> so what was your question, <laughs> so Ralph? I was sitting in the front. So I asked how that they were going to get Windows phones onto the cheaper devices, which had been part of their long-term yeah. strategy with Simon. It's the reason they sold so many. And actually, incidentally, it wasn't obvious that how serious a problem was at Nokia because they concentrated on low-end devices and consequently were able to sell a lot of them. And that competition at the high end, which the iPhone took and also other devices, was kind of not as obvious as it maybe should have been. Or maybe I should have just been better at seeing it. You were always asked to introduce who you were and where you were from. So I, I said, you know, Rafe Blanford from All About Symbian, at which point both of the Steves laughed <laughs> and sort of the entire press audience also laughed. I mean, it all happened so quickly. It was it was almost too quick to be in embarrassing. Did you have Steve Litchfield registering the domain all about Windows Phone as quickly <laughs> I, as you I'd could? I already registered the domain. <sighs> I see. But in all fairness, you know, people were very nice about it afterwards. But it was that was definitely a, a formative experience. Okay, so we're running out of time. So let's do some quick fire kind of high yeah. and lows, you know, kind of things. So most exciting or privileged or or kind of exclusive moment in your blogging career when did you think wow like i am properly seeing something amazing here it's hard to pick out 
When, they, when and, they sent and that it, jet for you. It, <laughs> an early one was at the first MWC I went to, I got taken out exclusively to the Series 60 yacht in the bay on a powerboat, which I thought was great. I got to go to the <laughs> N95 launch. And actually, if you look at the N95 launch coverage, I wrote the first kind of news about it. And this is how early it was. They weren't really okay with the fact that, you know, if you brief someone and they ask, you know, can I write about this? And they said, yeah, absolutely, you can write about this. But no one had checked what the deadline was. And so I wrote about it. And if you look back in the archives, you'll find posts about it. And then you'll find everyone else picking this up and saying, all about Symbian says this is going to happen. This launch will happen tomorrow. And no one actually believed me. In fact, on Engadget, which was the really big tech blog site at the time, they said, yeah, we've seen these specs. Actually, we don't really buy them because there's no way they're getting all of that into a phone. And actually, that kind of speaks to just how yeah. amazing the N95 was at the time. But then later on, actually, probably the level of access to executives being invited to go to a lot of conferences. I mean, I went all over the world, you know, to America multiple times, and then subsequently to the Microsoft Mobius stuff, which happened five times. HTC flew me out to their frequencies events. I went to all the Nokia worlds, and that was everywhere from Amsterdam to Abu Dhabi, and then lots of events in between, and also had very good access to Symbian itself, you know, including people like Nigel Clifford, who was the CEO. And so looking at it now, I'm kind of amazed at the level of access I had, but I took it very much for granted. But I think the thing that made me proudest was the fact that Symbian and all about Symbian was recognized as the biggest site. And there isn't really a comparison now in the tech world. I mean, it was... And so Joe, I have a follow-up question. Yeah. Right, just quickly define for me what the meaning of quick fire round is. Yeah, okay. Could you? Right. Yeah. Yes, right. good point. Sorry. Yeah. That's right. No, it's fine. It's just, so, it was a quick question, a long answer. <laughs> same, 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 right. Favourite Nokia handset ever. Ooh. I probably would have to go with um, the N95. Lowest moment or biggest disappointment in your blogging career? Hmm, that's a good question. I can't actually recall any really moments where I felt really annoyed with it. Have you ever thought about giving up writing? No. There came a point where Nokia had gone down, and probably this is the last bit of the story that people need to understand, and the site traffic dropped kind of inevitably because they were selling less handsets. And the switchover from Symbian to Windows Phone was definitely the end of an era for me, but I still really liked the products, and I liked a lot of the early Nokia Windows Phone devices. But also in, in this same sort of period of time, Blogging had become much more a thing, you know, YouTube unboxing. There'd been what I would call the buzzfeedization of content that kind of it had gone a lot more tabloid. And I always explain that all about sites were the broadsheet versions of these fan he, sites. He's the blogging telegraph. And the things were changing. But also I recognized that, you know, did I want to be doing this in 10 years' time? And that's actually, you know, all this time I'd also been doing consultancy work on the site. So the site was kind of one revenue stream, but actually the main one was from doing work for, and it could be for Symbian, it was for operators, Nokia, a whole bunch of software developers, which was really leveraging the expertise and the knowledge I had, often to just give people, yes, I think that's the right thing to do, or this is how you should set up the event and things like that. And I kind so of- how did you exit? Yeah, how did you exit from that then? So- I took the sort of decision that I wanted to kind of look around and I, I, you know, went through a couple of interviews with different people and then spoke to a friend of the show, Iliko Elia, who sort of said, I've got a great opportunity for you at Digital LBI. And it was a really hard decision to make inevitably. And I said, right then, well, I want to keep it going. And actually it's really thanks to my colleague, Steve Litchfield, that that's been possible. He does all the work really nice on, one, the, on the sites now. So a big thank you to him. But also there was a kind of realisation that I needed to think about where did my career go next? Did I want to be doing this writing in 10 years' time? 
And I think, you know, the nature of that kind of online journalism, which is what it was effectively, had changed almost out of all recognition in the previous four or five years. And because I'd been running a successful site and because I'd been able to be my own boss and set my agenda and do exactly what I wanted, I probably didn't recognise that early enough and as much as I should have done. And I know Ben and Ewan were both very kind in perhaps not being as pushed as they should have been about saying making a change. But I do remember having conversations with them about it and you know of course this was when 361 was getting that's true going. there you go that's right and yeah. so there was the backdrop to that and i realized that i enjoyed doing 361 and it kind of gave me a lot of that same buzz but also sort of where was this online publishing going to be in 10 years time and say this kind of changing content and also recognizing that mobile have brought about a change we're seeing you know in this same period we're seeing the death of kind of traditional media and I sort of thought, actually, I think the same thing is going to happen to the web media as well. There's going to be a much lower common denominator. So all of that made me go, I think I want to sort of leverage all this knowledge and expertise I have a mobile and take it into becoming basically a strategist. And actually, it's a fairly broad title, you know, using that knowledge to be able to go and help big brands and companies Do think, some about strategy. How, think about how they should take advantage of mobile. Because I've always seen mobile as a transformative technology that will you know, it's already changed the way we live our lives. The last five years are nothing to what's coming in the next five years. And ultimately, that was what interested me. You know, in the early days, it was all about Symbian and the technical details. But as I spent more and more time in mobile, actually, I didn't really care so much about what the technology, specifically the one that did it was, whether it was iPhone or Android. I cared about the impact that or, it could or Windows, have. Or Windows Phone. Or Windows Phone. I cared don't, about don't the impact it would have on people's lives. And anyone who's listened to me on 361 or the All About podcast or read my own will probably appreciate, you know, I did those really long, detailed reviews of handsets. But increasingly, it became much more about how can it make your life better? How can it transform businesses? And that's the thing that I still find absolutely right. fascinating. Okay, okay, okay. Right. Let's get personal. Okay. Favourite holiday destination? Pembrokeshire. Have you ever blogged in your underpants? Yes. <laughs> Favourite movie? Uh, Shawshank Redemption, maybe. Have you ever been asked for an autograph? Uh, yes. By Very, very excited ladies, is my experience. Unfortunately, you was there at the time. It's happened quite a few times, actually. Favourite <laughs> perk? Not phone, but favourite perk whenever you've been on a blogging trip? Oh, it's got to be the cross on MWC. And why was that uh, good? because I got to have a reserved seat while you and um, Ewan were made to sit in the back row. And you got a croissant and we did And I, I got a croissant. Now, I think the favourite perk was all of it. It was a privilege. Well, I think that's a, a good note to leave it on. Thank you for your, your, that, that was your, interesting, your honesty, Ralph Blanford. I think yes. there's many, many more questions we could ask. And there's that whole section that we had is well, about the fact that you, all these years they've been paying you to say you like Windows Phone. I think that's really <laughs> honest of you to uh, We haven't to, talked to about that. cement. No, Telegraph poles. Or indeed the Blanford estate and the legacy. That's, that's its own episode. Yeah. Maybe but actually, I mean, interested listeners can read about that in history books. Yeah. That's all the personal record. side. But I think perhaps in this podcast, I've underplayed just how much work was involved in those sort of 10 years of building up a site. And I am rather blase about it now. But when I have these kind of conversations, look back and go, actually, it was pretty incredible to build a site from nothing to you know, an audience of 5 million plus a month. And then, frankly, see it start to go downhill as well. And, you know, with hindsight, would I change things? Yeah, but actually it was an amazing, amazing opportunity. And it was a privilege to meet so many people as a result and actually have so many people email me saying, thank you for what you've written and having loads of interactions. I'm sure a lot of people are listening to it now. And actually it wouldn't have been possible without them. So actually just on a very personal point of view, 
thank you to everyone who's read the sites over the years because it really gave me an amazing opportunity. And the uh, the Ray Ferrati uh, thus satisfied. Still, still there, still right yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, as thank ever, you. thank you very much for listening. You can find us at 361podcast.com. You can contact us at 361podcast on Twitter. We're also on Facebook and LinkedIn, and you can email us through the website as well if you'd like to and leave us a voicemail. We can say thank you very much to Digitas LBI for providing our venue. Thank you to markaudioragler.co.uk for editing this and making it sound buttery, buttery smooth in joke. And thank you to Ralph Blanford for his candour, but and also keeping his trousers on this week as well. Yeah. We will be back next week and we will see you then. Bye-bye. So, Ralph Blanford, the story. How did you find that? I think you've got some bloody cheek sitting there with this whole, oh yes, I made a site, I had a million, uh, five, five million. But it's like anything in, in life, you very rarely see what you do yourself, especially you always admire what other people do. And it's not until you get an outside perspective. And I look back on it now and go, well, that was a lot of pages. That was a lot of forum users and that kind of access. I think at the time I didn't really have an appreciation for just how lucky I was. The only time I've seen you work firsthand is when we've been at events together. Yeah. And just like you are proper, full on from, you know, first thing in the morning. On it. Absolutely, to way past when I run out of steam in the evenings. And did you find like that you were there and you'd get something like a note on your phone? Oh, good, like some news has broken or I've got some information. I'm yeah. going to run home and write about it. And, you know, like almost, you know, sort of the, because you were the site or you and Steve and, you know, a small yeah. handful of you were the site that you had to sort of basically be switched on all the time. Yeah, I mean, it did require a tremendous amount of focus. And actually, one of the things that, you know, another reason we're kind of switching away was actually there were some really big tech sites emerged. And, you know, and early on, it was kind of Engadget. And, you know, there were a couple of others as well that had big stuff. But actually, more and more of those emerged. And actually, it was probably more mainstream media started covering tech in more detail. And so it was becoming hard to compete. I mean, there was a lot more competition. And also, you know, the first events I went to, which was Nokia Multimedia Conference, I was there as basically a 19-year-old, <laughs> surrounded by people in great, great, gray men in suits, Hello. and went to the media desk, and they didn't have a clue what to do with me. I was the only person there who wasn't called blogging, then it was online media. And uh, you were you know, blessed with a, a youthful complexion at and, the best of times that, as well. That, that really didn't help matters either. And then, of course, you <laughs> Wait, know, where's your dad? <laughs> and, and subsequently, going to MWC, you know, the last couple of years, you know, there were you know, 3,000 plus registered press, of which a good half would have been online media. But equally well, you know, by that time got well known with you and actually did a video interview with uh, Ansi Vanyoki, who basically admitted that the N97 was That's a disappointment. Mm. That was a he pretty... apologised on that. That, yeah. that was a pretty big moment and that got picked up by everyone. When that happened and he said those words, two questions. Did he plan to say that? Was that a deliberate media strategy? And did you sit there and think oh my God, like, stop the interview now. I have to go and just publish those words because this is going to be massive. Um, it was a, definitely a deliberate strategy and they'd lined up a friendly interviewer to do that. And I would be the first to acknowledge that All About Symbian was a friendly audience for Nokia yeah. to speak to. But, but you it weren't, enabled you them to get their message press, out. Though, were you in that sense? No, I wasn't trade press. And actually they did get tougher questions from me than my otherwise, but I would always try and give both sides of it. Uh, but yeah, I knew that was a big moment. I knew absolutely that would be picked up by everybody. And it was. And I think that was the biggest story in the site's history. And it got read hundreds of thousands, if not millions of times, and actually got quoted everywhere as well. Yeah.
I gave that video to, for you to publish, I think, didn't I? You did, you right? did. Yeah. You, Ewan was along as the uh, cameraman on that particular occasion. Well, you know, that's always been his forte. Why did you background. say he talks about the N97? Because on my site, I put, apologises. <laughs> Maybe that marks the difference between your styles. <laughs> did he, didn't he call you Rafi? He did. He thought I was a Spanish blogger, which was hilarious. <laughs> Actually, people struggling to announce or indeed understand Rafe Blanford's name has been a course of significant mirth over, uh, mirth over the years. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, it, it, no, it's, yeah, it's it's fascinating. So, in '97 uh, has been a tremendous success for us when it comes to how many did we ship and how much money did we collect. But it has been a tremendous disappointment in terms of the experience quality. Uh, that's him apologising and something we did not anticipate. It happens every now and then in a big company like Nokia that even if you have the most stringent uh, quality control mechanism, something slips. And uh, everything slips. You notice oh. one thing leads to another thing, you fix that, and actually you make things worse and so forth. And this has been just an unbelievable cycle of things for us that uh, has taken far too long to repair and mitigate. But now I can tell you that it's over. Now we have a software that is properly tested, not only by our engineers and labs, but normal people out in the marketplace. But to have a, an executive talk like that was pretty incredible. I think he actually said he wasn't getting sleep. The N97 was meant to be their oh. iPhone killer. And it's not long after that, of course, that he lost out to uh, Stephen Elop for the position of CEO. I wonder if that still stings a bit, actually, because obviously, you know, whatever you think of Stephen Elop as a person, I don't think history is going to judge his reign at Nokia as a success. No. no. The first comment under it says, N97, I want my money back. Well, I mean, in retrospect, I think you can see that the seeds of Nokia's demise were there very early on. It's very easy to have a very singular view of history, though. There are plenty of things that could have been done to sort of nudge that in the other direction, and it didn't happen. But, you know, as we said in the previous episode, there's right, another world. If they had had a few more friendly critics. People have said that to me before, and I, I think that puts uh, way, way too much influence in no, the I think I, I think he should have spoken out. I think that the you know, vast swathes of Finland is now just barren, uninhabited <laughs> wasteland, <laughs> racked with financial ruin, you know, large, empty buildings that previously were foot piled high with stockpiles of S60 phones. And, you know, I think you have to ask yourself some hard questions, Rafe. Yeah. I apologise to all of those Finns who feel that I've uh, ruined their economy and country. <laughs> Did you enjoy the experience? Um, oh, sorry, I mean of the podcast, not of, of this I, podcast, I'm, not ruining the country. I'm not very fond of uh, talking about myself, and actually, one of the rules I had over the years, but always promoted the brand of the site over me personally, because I thought that that was more important. I'm, I'm a pretty private individual. I keep most things uh, apart, apart, apart from when you get naked and go on a podcast. Yeah, well, there, you know, there's exceptions <laughs> to every rule, I guess, and sometimes peer pressure just gets to you. <laughs> And, and, and let's just say that if 361 has been about anything over the last five years, it has been about peer pressure. Yeah. But, uh, but also it's a, it is kind of an important point that, as I said, the brand of All About was more important to me than my personal one and always staked on having a, a quiet reputation, I believed, and not sort of bigging it up too much. And actually I got there by letting people judge the results from themselves. And again, I think that was perhaps a reflection of my... Uh, naivety about the way those things work but it was also the person i am and the style i did things what in. did your parents and think wouldn't do it any different uh, i think like uh, most parents they were worried to begin with what it was about but then they did see me getting invited off to these places and 
Did that well, help? Did they? That definitely gave it. What some did you say to your parents? I am not going to take a gap year. I am just going to take a three day trip to Amsterdam, whatever, to see Nokia. It was, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was something like that. And also, I mean, they could see I was working hard, and that was actually what was important to them. And they could see that I was learning a lot. I mean. I'm not really a believer in looking back and wishing that you'd done things differently because I had a, a fantastic experience and enjoyed it immensely. And the opportunity it's given me, it's it sort of turned me into the person I am today. So looking back with regret, you sort of go, well, actually, no, not at all. Can you see points where things could have been very different? Yeah, like anyone in life. What was your best press trip? Ooh, I think I probably enjoyed the trips to Seattle most of all. And that was actually with Microsoft because... The content was interesting, but actually it was also with a group of 20 like-minded people for sort of three or four days. And so, you know, you went out and we talked about the future of the industry and everyone understood that mobile was big. I don't think any of us necessarily would have been able to see forward 10 years to where it is now. But I remember go, I actually went to Euro Disney was the first one of those where they held it and sort of getting on the Paris and turning up the first time and not being allowed into the hotel because what? they thought I was too young. Oh and dear. so I had to get my ID out and sort of pray, yeah, no, I'm really this person, honest. I was just going to do a Windows mobile Mickey Mouse junkie. <laughs> <laughs> actually, those things, you know, saw early access to things like Kin, which was the Microsoft product that didn't sort of really go anywhere. Oh, yeah. Heard about Photon, which was Windows Phone, you know, sort of, good nine months before it actually was in the public. So amazing amount of access that they did. But actually, I think the biggest privilege I had over years was the close and frequent access to Nokia people and products. And they were very forward thinking in terms of granting that. And that actually extended into their wider Word and Moth program. And a thousand heads run that. And it's had various names over the years. But the kind of the blogger relations program is a model which I think a lot of other manufacturers have right. tried to follow but have never managed to quite the same affection. So I think a lot of people who write about mobile, who have been around more than five, sort of five or six years, have an enormous affection for Nokia. And actually, it's a great lesson. that If you can build those relations, people will give you attention. And it probably more so than necessarily the product and the quality of it would have dictated otherwise. There we go. Job done. 